Living a well-balanced lifestyle goes beyond ensuring your finances are in order. Welcome to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara speaks with wellness industry leaders and related professionals to share more than financial planning advice. She addresses your questions about living a healthy lifestyle at any age. Learn how to gracefully maneuver life's challenges with support and resources to guide you along the way. Barbara and the team at Hightower help you make a plan, make an investment, and make a difference in your own wealth and well-being, and in your families, and within your community. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Now, on to the show. Hello, I'm Barbara Archer, your host for Keeping the Well and Wealthy, where we discuss living a healthy lifestyle and offering support and resources to gracefully maneuver life's challenges at any age. Today, my guest and I will have a frank discussion on breast cancer, the different types where genetics have a role, diagnosis and treatment choices, emotional and psychological impact and post-recovery options and challenges. So why is this such an important topic? Well, one in eight or 12.5% of all new cancer cases diagnosed worldwide will be breast cancer, making this the most common cancer in the world, as well as the most expensive to treat. In 2023, an estimated 300,000 new cases of invasive breast cancer were expected to be diagnosed, while there are currently more than 4 million women with a history of breast cancer in the U.S., Let's learn more from my guest, Victoria Smart. Victoria is the Senior Vice President of Mission for the Susan G. Komen Organization, the world's largest breast cancer organization with over $3 billion in investments in breast cancer research, advocacy, and patient support to date. Victoria leads Komen's research and scientific strategies, including the Big Data for Breast Cancer program, which seeks to bring innovation to patients faster, the Komen Patient Care Center, serving over 55,000 patients annually, and Komen Center for Public Policy, advocating for patient protection and access to care. Victoria has been working in the fight against cancer for nearly 25 years, beginning her career with the American Association for Cancer Research. We are so fortunate to have this sought-after public speaker on research, public health, and breast cancer patient advocacy join us today. So welcome, Victoria. Thank you so much for that warm welcome and for that introduction, but especially for today's focus on breast cancer. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to help educate us on breast cancer. So can you please first just share your story of how you became involved in the fight against breast cancer? Oh, yes, I'd love to. Um, my story starts 25 years ago, as you mentioned, with my career at the American Association for Cancer Research, which is an amazing organization based in Philadelphia, really supporting scientists in the pursuit of of new developments against all cancers. And I was there as a young woman who had never had been touched by breast cancer by myself, my friends, or my family. I was there for the love of the science and the ability to do something bigger than myself. And again, it wasn't personal until it was. And mm. one of my co close friends and colleagues at AACR was diagnosed with breast cancer while we were working together. Her name is Glennis, and she was just a few years older than me. And I, it became so personal to think, here I was at the beginning of a career 
to do things that Glynis would never be able to do. And this feeling that cancer wasn't just a question to be answered by science, but a problem to be solved by people became very personal to me. When I looked around the organization that I felt did it so right by putting patients at the center of everything they did was Susan G. Coleman. And many people know us from all the work that we do in community and bringing people together. Sure. And that translates into everything they do. And so when the opportunity came for me to join Coleman, um, I said yes. Oh, and we are so glad you did. Thank you for doing that. And I'm sorry about your friend, Glennis, having had that challenge. I've had many friends myself and an aunt, so it is personal to me. And I'm really pleased today that we can bring up some of these topics, such as the number of women affected by the this terrible disease and what are the risk factors? So can we just start there? What are some yeah. of these risk factors? Let's start at the beginning. So, you know, here here's the first myth buster that we can do. Good. Every, everyone is at risk for breast cancer. And that's not just women, men also get the disease. That's probably the first new thing, hopefully I'm sharing with your listening audience, okay. that everyone is at risk for breast cancer, but some of us are at higher risk than others, right? So the truth is, um, you know, the number one risk factors for breast cancer being a woman, but also getting older. But no one knows why one person is going to get breast cancer over another. There's still a lot of things we need to uncover, but we do know what helps lead someone become at higher risk. And so it's probably a combination of risk factors. So things that you may not have control of, like having a family health history of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, or prostate cancer. And that may mean that you've inherited a mutation in your genes that makes you more susceptible for breast and other cancers. There are a few other things that may lead you to have a higher risk. And these are things like being overweight or choosing to take hormones um, after menopause, like hormone replacement therapy. There is research now that shows that people, women who have higher breast density, that can make them four or five times more likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer. If you have high breast density, that means you have more breast cells. And the thinking is maybe more breast cells mean more risk. That research is still emerging. So those are some of the things that we know. There's also some things that are still emerging. And at Coma, we've invested in research that's looking at a lot of things over the course of your lifetime that could increase your risk. I'll share one thing that might be interesting to your listening audience as well. Shift work. Women who work the night shift have a slightly higher risk of breast cancer. And oh. we think, yes, interesting, right? So let's think about our nurses. Let's think right. about our police officers. Let's think about our pilots and our flight attendants. People who are working overnight, who are exposed to bright lights. It seems that they have a slightly higher risk of breast cancer. Really interesting. And what the punchline for all of this is, is there may not be you know, one thing that specifically causes breast cancer to start. It is probably a combination of things that happen to you over the life course. 
There's well, a couple things that you're seeing on social media. Um, science has not yet fully proven the link, but I want to talk about things that we hear about a lot on Facebook. Plastics, BPAs, parabens, dairy products, hair dyes, deodorant. Studies are still underway, so don't get nervous yet. I know there's a lot of chatter, but those aren't the things that are driving breast cancer today. Well, thank you for sharing that. But gosh, working the night shift, that's a new one. I've That's totally new. So, you know, so we're thinking about things, right? Sure. Like women want to know what's in my environment that could sure. be, you know, driving my risk. And we tend to think about things like pollution, air pollution, um, you know, other types of pollution, but it's even the lifestyle that you're living. That's also within your environment. So when we're looking to study all of the causes around us, things that are in our body, we have to look at things that are external to us as well. Everything needs to be studied so that we know. That is fascinating. I, I yeah. want to go back a moment, and you mentioned about dense breasts. Mm -hmm. um, and does that impact detection? If you're saying it, it might um, have a higher probability of having cancer, is there anything you can do differently for detection? That is a great, great question. So you may know that there's new legislation that's requiring doctors to let their patients know during their screening mammograms whether or not they have dense breasts. That's a great first step. But you ask a really great question is, so what do I do about it? When you're told that you have dense breasts, it just means that you have more breast, uh, breast tissue than you have fatty tissue in your breasts. And if you look at your mammogram, you can see the difference. Women who have less breast tissue, their mammograms are clearer and easier to read. If you have dense breasts, it makes it more difficult because the mammograms are very compact and cloudy and seem crowded with a lot of stuff, difficult to see signs of breast cancer. What doctors may recommend that you do is have additional imaging. I, I'll speak first personally. It's okay that I disclose this. I have dense breasts. And when I go to get my imaging done, my radiologist recommends not only a screening mammogram, but she also does an ultrasound, just that she has a, she has a better picture of what's happening with my breast health and is able to better guide me to know whether or not I have an issue that needs follow-up. Well, Victoria, I just had my first ultrasound mm. because I had the same issue with dense breasts and they mm. sent me back and I was happy to go. You know, let's mm -hmm. check it out. So let's talk about that, about early diagnosis. Um, mm -hmm. We read about checking our breasts monthly and having mammograms annually. And how compliant are most of us in doing that? You know, if that that's a great question. So the good news is, is the majority of women in the U.S. have gotten the message that they need regular screening mammography. So that's, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a great, great statistic. More than 80% are going and showing up and getting this, this testing done. Good. Sounds great, but there's still huge numbers of women in this country who, for a variety of reason, reasons are not accessing regular mammograms. And it's part of what we do here at Coleman is to really drive the message about the importance of screening and early detection, but also the importance of knowing what is normal for you. So the road to screening you know, can start at a very young age. We recommend that women start getting clinical breast exams at age 20. So when you're going for your routine GYN exams to have that clinical breast exam and have uh, a doctor 
you know, examine whether or not there may be an issue. But here's the thing. Mammography was designed to help support those clinical breast exams because that image can help find signs of breast cancer 10 years before a doctor can feel it. Oh my goodness. Did you say 10 years? Yes, I did. So, you know, this is the beauty of imaging is that you're finding evidence long before it can be felt. And that's really key. This is our goal. If someone is diagnosed with breast cancer, we want them to be diagnosed at the earliest possible stage because treatments are less toxic, they're less expensive, and survival is the greatest. And so... I'll talk Let's talk a little about bit. yeah impact yeah. survival rates. I mean, we've talked about some scary things. Let's talk about some positive here. Let's talk because this, because here's the great news for most people who are diagnosed at an earlier stage. The five year survival rate, if you catch that breast cancer be- before it has grown anywhere, mm-hmm. survival rate um, five years ninety nine percent. Five oh year gosh. relative survival rate is ninety nine percent. Even if you've caught it at the not so earliest stage. This survival rate is 86%. So think about that range, 86 to 99%. Really wow. great news. You're getting treatment that is less toxic, less expensive. You have a better outcome, less impact, let fewer side effects. This is what we want to promote is to get people in to find it as early as possible and then get the roadmap to the best treatment path for you. Well, Victoria, I'm going to interrupt here a second. You mentioned different stages of breast cancer. Can you Mm -hmm. explain that significance and and early stages, late stages? We've heard the one, two, three, four thing. Mm -hmm. Can you help us with that? Oh boy. The academic question is, the the academic answer is a lot more complicated, but I'll try to make it simple. But I want, before I get into stages, I want to get into early diagnosis. This is a point that's really important for our listeners. Screening is not diagnosis. When you go in for your screening mammogram, you're, you're going in to find out whether or not you have something wrong. If you get sent home, it means everything looks great. You don't have anything to worry about. But if your doctor finds something, that also doesn't mean you have something to worry about. It just means we need to look a little further. A diagnosis with breast cancer comes after screening. You'll go back maybe for more imaging, maybe for a biopsy, and then your breast cancer could be diagnosed at that point. Really important for us to talk about this because the road to early diagnosis doesn't you know, stop with breast cancer screening. It just starts there. What you'll want to do to get an accurate diagnosis after, you know, additional imaging is your care team is going to look really deeply at a variety of things, how large your tumor may be, what its biological makeup is, what your biological makeup is. There's a lot of things they want to look at in order to accurately stage the di- stage the breast cancer, the size of the tumor, whether or not your lymph nodes are involved in a variety of other things. Stage zero, this means that for the most part, the breast cancer is limited to your ducts, and we call that ductal carcinoma in situ. It's the very earliest. It hasn't gone anywhere. It's very contained. Sometimes your doctor may recommend a watch and wait approach for breast cancer cells that are at this earlier stage. Very interesting. But as you go from stage one to stage two to stage three, 
this is this is describing breast cancers that are larger and maybe invading into other tissues in the breast. When we get to stage four, we're talking about breast cancer that now has gone beyond the breast and has traveled to other parts of the body. Most commonly, we're talking about breast cancer in the bones or the brain or the lungs. This is still breast cancer, even though it's in other parts of the body. It's just traveled to other organs and we have to treat it very, very differently. The staging, you know, and all of this characterization of your personal breast cancer is very, very important. Knowing all these details, all of these numbers, it gives your care team the roadmap for what to do that's going to save your life. Well, that is significant. So, and there are many different types of breast cancer. Is that true? There are many different types of breast cancer. You know, okay. back in the day, we used to think breast cancer, you know, one size fit all. And there's no woman who believes that to be true. Um, there are a lot of different types of breast cancer. And we talk about it in terms of what the breast cancer has and sometimes what it doesn't have. Some breast cancers are driven by a protein called HER2. We would call that HER2 positive breast cancer. Other breast cancers are driven by your hormones. We would call that estrogen receptor positive breast cancer or progesterone receptor positive breast cancer. Sometimes can cancers have all three. That would be triple positive breast cancer. Some breast cancers have none. This hmm. is the most aggressive type of breast cancer, and we would call that triple negative breast cancer. There are even more things that your care team will look at to fully characterize your personal breast cancer. This is really important to know because just because you might have a diagnosis that sounds similar to mm -hmm. one of your friends and neighbors, your breast cancer is going to be as unique as you are. And all of this information is going to come together so that your care team can plan the best attack for you. That so is so important. How do those treatment options vary? What are the different types of treatments that uh, a woman or what is it less than 1% though of men have breast cancer, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. So mostly women, um, what can yeah. they expect as far as different types of treatment options from their care team? You know, I really love that you said the word options. This is really, really important because 40 years ago, there were not any options or choices to make. You know, in, in my early career, we know so little about breast cancer. And oftentimes we really just treated way too much. You know, think about things that were, we were talking about years ago, radical disfiguring mastectomies were yes. often recommended. Yes. And most of the treatments we were talking about were toxic chemotherapies that had really difficult, difficult side effects. So I want to share, you know, this really great news. We have had an explosion of developments since those early days thanks to incredible investment in research, and thanks to the amazing volunteers, volunteer patients who've agreed to be on clinical trials. Wow. Because of them, treatments are now very targeted and they are designed to ensure the best possible outcome with the least possible impact on our qualities of life. So in the past 10 years alone, there have been 19 drugs for breast cancer approved by the FDA, 19 new things just in the past decade. And there are many, many more on the horizon. 
And so the other thing, before I give you the list of what you may expect, so the other thing I want to say that's changed is your treatment path is not just a medical decision. It's also a personal decision, you know, and thanks to all these options, you can now consider your personal values and your lifestyle when you're making decisions about how to treat your personal breast cancer. Um, because there's so many differences. Remember, this is a very personal thing between you. Thank and you your for saying team. that. It is right. <laughs> you know, Each person's you, you, going to accept or, you know, discuss their options individually, and it's not just a one size fits all anymore. Which, uh, when my it, great aunt had it, it was pretty much one size fit all, unsuccessfully. But yeah, I'm sorry. I am so sorry to hear that. It's you know it's sort of a relic of the past where people were just expected to accept mm -hmm. without conversation, without a commitment to educating our patients about what all these choices meant um, and what they could mean for their outcomes. You know, everyone has different desires in their life and different um, things they may be willing to accept. Some patients may want to do more, maybe more than necessary, because that's what they need to be at peace with moving forward in their lives. Other people may decide, you know, I want to do a few fewer things because what's important to me is I want to be able to continue working or I want to be able to take that trip that I want to take. And so I want to design my care plan a little bit differently. These are all acceptable choices to make. Um, but I'm not so Pollyanna to believe that this is everyone's equal experience. I think we do have a little way to go to be sure that everyone has equal access to the kind of care that they deserve. And also that our care teams are ready to receive that partnership from our patients. Um, not everyone's to be questioned about, about their expertise, right? But I think, right. you know, we've got to work really carefully together between our patients and our care team, and we can get there and make this a partnership. So let's get back to your first question, which is <laughs> what can you expect for treatment? I know I was sure. going get, to get back there eventually. No, no, um, no problem. Most treatment for early invasive breast cancers are going to include surgery, sometimes with, sometimes without radiation and some combination of therapies, hopefully targeted therapies, hormone therapies, if you have the type of breast cancer that is driven by ER positive or PR positive, your uh, estrogen and your progesterone, you might have HER2 targeted therapy if you have that type of breast cancer. There are new types of therapies on the market that are immunotherapies that are really harnessing the power of our own immune systems to fight breast cancers. There are even more therapies out there that target different aspects of the cell cycle or the biological processes that drive breast cancers. We still do use chemotherapies, but there are now a host of options for your care team to choose from in consultation with you. Some of these therapies happen before surgery. That's called neoadjuvant. Some of these therapies happen after surgery. That's called adjuvant. But there is a plan. There should be a plan for your treatment that will include one or more of these. Well, thank you. And I'm fascinated by you talking about the neo 
Well, you, you said neoadjunct? Neoadjuvant, which means adjuvant. prior to surgery. And the goal okay. for that is we want to help your surgical team have the best possible results for you. Sure. And sometimes that means reducing the size of a breast cancer tumor. And so giving some therapies in advance of surgery can help do that. That means that your surgical team can attack a tumor that has smaller margins. They can, you know, do the best they can and really improve your outcomes um, by starting some therapy before surgery even happens. And I remember the first time one of my friends had mentioned their treatments before surgery. I was so stunned. And I mm-hmm. thought, wow, that that is leaps and bounds different than what we knew 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it it is amazing. And so should someone move forward and have mastectomy, how has that surgery changed and the option of reconstruction? Oh, that's also a great question and also one that really, you know, lends to personal decision making. Mastectomy used to be one of the sole options we had for people who were diagnosed with breast cancer and it was a very extension, extensive and disfiguring approach. Now, this has greatly improved due to lots of findings from clinical trials. In some cases, women may choose not to have a mastectomy and just choose to have a lumpectomy and radiation. Some women who are either choosing or are recommended to have mastectomies now have more options. There are more approaches that can spare more of the skin so that you have a better chance for reconstruction. There are some people who are choosing to spare their nipples during mastectomy. So again, that helps give a better cosmetic look and feel and confidence, right? This mm-hmm. this personal feeling is also very important. There are also many now reconstruction options for people who would like to have reconstruction. Again, that's also a choice. There are some women who've decided they would rather remain flat. Um, the idea of having choices is really important to us. Um, people who have faced a mastectomy option recently may have been watching the news that there was some changes about to happen with our insurance coverage that would make a specific type of natural reconstruction unaffordable for most women. Oh my goodness. Um, This is one of the things that we do through the Komen Center for Public Policy is we really bring the voice of those 4 million breast cancer survivors Mm -hmm. to our elected officials and help educate them as to why certain things are needed to improve our quality of life and save our lives. And this option for this type of reconstruction was really important to our constituency. Um, Komen held some conversations with the leaders at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services And we successfully advocated along with our colleagues in this field to change that approach. And this has preserved this option of reconstruction for the patients who want to choose to do it. This is, you know, this is really important. And I think it is um, important. A hallmark of patient advocacy is that we want people to be able to chart the course and make choices. Well, as we talk about making choices, What advice do you have for those struggling to cope with their initial breast cancer diagnosis? Because you mentioned the care team, and I will share with you, um, I've had my friend Bill Potts, who wrote the book Up for the Fight, because he's been challenged by six times at least by now, um, cancers, but he also mentions the importance of the care team and and the conversations. So what advice do you have for those struggling to cope? 
Excuse the interruption. I know you're listening to High Towers Keeping the Well and Wealthy podcast. But if you have questions related to these or other wellness and financial issues, please reach out to your advisor or go to hightoweradvisors.com to find a financial advisor near you. Now, back to Barbara. The first thing I would say is, you know, a diagnosis of breast cancer or any cancer can make a person feel so alone. And I think the most important thing is to find that community and to reach out for that help because there's no better support system than to be around people who have walked a mile in your shoes. Um, We have at Coleman a breast care helpline where we provide services on the phone or via email um, Monday through Friday. Um, It's entirely free and it's all staffed by oncology social workers. Many of our colleagues on the helpline themselves have been diagnosed with breast cancer, and they're really driven by this personal need to be that voice on the phone for another person. What I'll tell someone is that you are not alone. There are people who understand very deeply what you're going through and are ready to listen, to provide support without judgments and allow you to show up exactly how you are whenever you need to show up, to be heard, to be understood, to be supported through this journey. Um, That's the professional side of the house. But before I scare off all the friends and family, I want to say, you don't have to have walked this journey to be a good listener to be someone who will be supportive, who will think about those things that that breast cancer patient may need, like a warm meal for their family or for a ride to that medical appointment. There's lots of ways that we can show up in the lives of people who are facing breast cancer that don't require any particular expertise. It's just a desire to help and the love for the person that you care about. My biggest piece of advice to our care teams would be don't wait to be asked because sometimes our our patients are so burdened with this journey that the last thing that they can think about is how can I burden someone else right. with my needs. You know, um, it would be great if we could just provide a list like offer to pick up the kids or take mm-hmm. the kids to school or give them an extra hour in the evening after they've had a treatment or go with them to treatment, sit there mm-hmm. and talk, play cards, have a conversation. Keep it normal, you know, right? Yeah. Like we can still as laugh, much as we, we can, can still want to have fun. We still want to, you know, true. what can we do? Housewives, right? They're still our friends and our family members. How do we make this as normal as possible? Right. And, and keep shut it, them out. Exactly. Don't be afraid yeah. to be there. And just ask, don't wait for them to ask you, but you ask them, Hey, could I come over and watch TV with you? Hey, do you want to, you know, you know, do you need these things? Can I help or can I just visit and hang out? Really, really important. How about some warm socks or some new body lotion? You know, just simple things. Exactly. You know, that just goes a really long way. We hear a lot of, you know, from our own friends and colleagues, like even receiving a card in the mail meant so much because it felt that they weren't forgotten. You know, you've got, there's, there's a lot of different experiences when you're diagnosed with breast cancer. And I know that there are survivors out there who will resonate with this, that there are people in their lives who exited because they didn't know how to handle their friend's breast cancer diagnosis. That's that's so so sad. sad. 
you know, and so you know, don't be that person. You can find a way um, to lean in. For your readers who want to take the next step and feel like they really want to be that advocate for their friend or family member, getting educated is really important. Um, being a good note taker is really important. When your friend and or um, loved one is going through a breast cancer diagnosis, the amount of information that comes at you at any given moment is overwhelming. I've talked about a lot of very complicated things, and I've sure. done my best to make it lay friendly, but I'm sure I failed on several levels. Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> so think about, you know, think about what it's like when you've just gotten a life-threatening diagnosis, you've stopped listening. Mm -hmm. If you're that friend and family member who wants to be that advocate get educated, take good notes, ask lots of questions, be on that journey together with your friend, with your loved one, um, and help them, you know, have all the information to help make good decisions. You can learn a lot as a non-clinical person through organizations like Coleman. And there are many organizations that do this from a lay person education perspective that will give you the facts and information through videos. If you'd like to read a blog, we have a blog. If you'd like to attend a webinar, there are webinars. If you'd like so to you take have, a quiz, you we have, have those too. Is it true you have like a patient navigation training program we for non-nurses or caregivers so that they can do. learn? We do. You have so, so much on your website, which we will share, obviously, in the podcast huge. notes. It's huge. But, you know, anyone could be a navigator. One of the things I say is, you know, we think about how mammograms have helped to save lives. I think patient navigators are the next mammogram. Every best breast cancer patient could benefit from having a navigator by their side. So if you're, you know, if you want to be that person, our free online program that's available on Komen.org, you can go through training to learn how to be a good advocate for a breast cancer patient from a variety of things, how to talk to doctors about options, but also how to deal with things like experiencing bias in the healthcare system. What do you do when a healthcare provider might tell you, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, or you don't have to worry about that? We're going to give you the tools to overcome some of that so that you you do feel like you have been seen and heard. It's really important. But you can get that training for free. We developed it in partnership with our colleagues at George Washington University in DC um, so that we could provide it for free to the public. We do not want costs to be standing in the way of people wanting to support each other through this disease. Well, thank you. And are there lifestyle changes, Victoria, that can positively impact someone living with breast cancer? Um, how to help them with whether it's diet or exercise or mental well-being in that whole treatment and recovery process? It's been one of the great joys of my career to see that these complementary approaches to standard treatments are gaining so much respect. The answer is yes. So I, I've got good news and maybe challenging news. There is research that shows that if you lose weight after a breast cancer diagnosis, you actually have a better outcome. Amazing. The goal of the scientists who did the study were actually looking to see that would weight loss be almost as effective as, say, chemotherapy in, in addressing some challenges with breast cancer treatment? Watch this space. I will tell you more. But if, um, if you can make a commitment to exercise, that's really great news. I think mindfulness is really important. And for breast cancer patients to do things that make them feel better 
and feel in control. We've looked at studies for things like Reiki. We've looked at things like yoga. We looked at things like just simply walking or even expressive writing, anything to make you feel um, more in control of your health is being shown to help improve your outcomes. So do it. Here's my bad news. We all have to put the wine glass down. I know it's been COVID. Oh, I no. know. I know. <laughs> it's, you know, we we really have to. I know we want to believe in the power of the red wine, but um, unfortunately, I, I have to break everybody's hearts and say that um, alcohol consumption is one of those things that I would recommend that you reduce in your life. Please don't do that. Oh, thank you. Reduce, not totally eliminate, maybe. So, well, you know, some of the, the nurse on my team would say, Victoria, tell them to stop entirely. But, you know, I'm a believer in reality and um, m- making adult choices. So, well, thank you for sharing that. And you're right, that is more difficult than getting out and walking every morning. Victoria, can you just give me a little more information on genetics and how that impacts breast cancer? Uh, that's a great question. And it's, I'll, I'll start by talking about family health history because I mentioned that earlier in terms of a risk profile. And what we're curious to know is for people who have a strong family health history, your mom, your aunt, your grandmother, your father have had types of breast cancer. We recommend that you consider meeting with a genetic counselor, because that may mean that you have a genetic mutation that makes you more susceptible to breast, colon, prostate, and other types of cancer. This is important not to frighten you, but so that you can make good healthcare decisions before you're diagnosed. Knowing whether or not you have a genetic mutation helps you and your care team decide what steps to take. Sometimes that might mean preventive surgery. Sometimes that may mean taking certain medications. Sometimes that may mean just some watchful waiting. But it's important for you to have that choice. It's important for you also to talk to someone about that. These are important decisions to make, and we don't want you to make them alone. So at Coleman, we believe, don't just order a test off of the internet. I know they're cheap. Get the counseling. Right. I think it's and work with the professionals. Work with a professional. Yes, please. Um, these are important decisions to make. They may be fun, but this is serious health business. Absolutely. But we recommend that that you consider this. That may be a good decision for you in charting your health. Thank you for sharing that. So important. Um, I do have one more question and about breast cancer. And that is, as we look to the future, Victoria, any latest advancements in treatment or research? Because I know so much funding comes from Susan G. Komen. What can we look for in the future? Oh, you know, my ultimate future is going to be one without breast cancer. Um and that is what we're working toward with our investment. Um, we, we've been investing in breast cancer research since our founding 40 years ago. And we've invested in thousands of scientists across the world to the tune of about a billion dollars. It's a lot of investment. And I've shared throughout the podcast, you know, just what the impact that has been, you know, 19 drugs in the past 10 years alone 
Comas actually played a role in helping all 19 of those get to our patients. That is fabulous. Now, a billion dollars sounds, a billion dollar, I'm very proud of a billion dollars sounds like a lot of money, but that could actually be the cost to develop just one of those drugs. Oh my so goodness. So think of Coman as just, you know, just a friend along the way that at some point we leaned in and made an investment that made a difference. And that's what this is all about is with every new discovery, we're learning more, we're doing more, and we're doing better for our patients. What you may have been seeing a lot lately is the promise of artificial intelligence, as well as the concerns about artificial intelligence and, you know, what that means for, you know, for for breast cancer. We've been investing and looking at this from the perspective of early detection, because that's where we started. So I'll talk a little bit about this. And so think about the stat that I shared that the imaging did better than the clinician in finding breast cancer at its earliest stages. It knocked down that time period by 10 years. Now think about the technology's opportunity to even do that earlier if we had a tool like AI that would help the technology learn how to be more accurate at finding a breast cancer cell even earlier than it does now. So those that concept is very interesting for those of us who want to see a world without breast cancer. How can we find it before maybe it even becomes what we think of as a breast cancer cell. We've invested in a lot of that technology and you're seeing some companies now putting that in the market and inviting people to participate. Um, I invite people to discuss that with their doctor. Please don't think of that as a substitute for mammography, but maybe something to do alongside if that makes sense for you. But I look forward to a future where technologies like this um, will really make a difference in even earlier detection. That's extraordinary. But let's oh get away goodness. from machines, right? Right. So what if we didn't need a machine at all? What if you could do something like a blood test, you know, a finger prick in the privacy of your own home, or maybe even a saliva test? So much easier. <laughs> and right, you know, gosh, could we have it delivered overnight to our homes? Um, so think about that. So that's other technology that we're looking at is, you know, looking at what we call a liquid biopsy. How could we, you know, develop things like the ability to detect in just a drop of blood or in saliva that would give us that indication, not only if breast cancer is actually diagnosed, but could that same approach change, you know, get away from having to do a needle biopsy and you can get your diagnosis from blood or saliva. Lots of different ways we can use that technology. So that's the the future. In addition to additional life-saving drugs, we're looking at technology that can help patients get diagnosed, get treated earlier, and really with less impact on their lives. Well, I hope Komen keeps moving forward with their mission because this all sounds so hopeful. And I appreciate you sharing all this information. So just as a little summary, some of my notes I have is that early diagnosis is key to fighting breast cancer. So doing our self-checks and please ladies get your mammograms. And about five to 10% of breast cancers are thought to be hereditary. So maybe before you get tested, have your legal documents and insurance prior to that genetic testing about your health and potential disease risk. 
survival rates continue to climb with early diagnosis. And one of our first calls should be to the patient care center at 1877-GO-COMEN. That's G-O-K-O-M-E-N. Even if you're just concerned or questioning. So Victoria, my last question for you is this, how do you keep your well and wealthy? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I'd say, you know, exercise is really important to me, um, you know, to stay healthy, to also give me that time to myself to think, to plan, just to be, you know, hiking and walking has been a huge part of my life. Um, it's something that anyone can do anywhere with minimal equipment. It's my favorite form of exercise. I've been to beautiful places in the world, including in the past year, I've hiked Mount Etna in Italy. It was an amazing ah, experience. Love um, and that is how I keep my well and my wealthy. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Well, Victoria, you've enlightened us on breast cancer challenges today and hope for the future. And we thank you for joining us. I will provide show notes to connect our listeners to the Real Pink podcast as well as the Susan G. Komen website and other resources. So thank you all for tuning in and listening to Keeping the Well and Wealthy with me as your host, Barbara Archer. If you have not yet subscribed to the podcast, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when I come out with a new podcast, it will show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask you to share the, this podcast, rate it, leave a review, as this actually helps others find the show. Again, thank you for listening today. From everyone at Hightower Advisors, this is Barbara Archer reminding you to go out in the world and make a difference. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Hightower Wealth Advisors. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Hightower Wealth Advisors is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained 
gained from the use of this information. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material is not intended or written to provide and should not be relied upon or used as a substitute for tax or legal advice. Information contained herein does not consider an individual's or entity's specific circumstances or applicable governing law, which may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and be subject to change. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.